go to Romans chapter 13. As you are turning there, uh, I do not do this very often um, during this time, but I do want to make an announcement again that was already made at the beginning. Men, men's retreat this weekend. We've done this the last several years. We've always had a great turnout, um, but men are usually a little slow in signing up. Signing up really does help us with some practical things. This Friday night and Saturday, it's not even 24 hours, come about 5 o'clock Friday evening. We'll be out of there about noon, 1 o'clock on Saturday. You're going to have three good spiritual meals and three good physical meals, okay? Um, we're going to have some sessions where we get into the Word of God out of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, and you're all, we're also going to be eating pretty good as well. But please go to the website and sign up. That would help us out a ton. Um, but in the end, just, just come. It's going to be worth your time. It's a great time of fellowship, getting to know each other, and being strengthened in the Word and by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, please do that. Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 1. We'll be in the first seven verses this morning, talking about God and the government. Okay? It's going to be fun. Uh, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not, are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Again, open the eyes of our heart that we might see wonderful things from your word. Use this passage, Lord. Your word tells us about your word that all of it is not only inspired, but it is sufficient. And it is enough and we need it that we might be well-equipped for every good work. So please use it to that end this morning. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Back in the summer of 2005, Hannah and I led a youth group that we were working with at the time on a missions trip to Belfast, Northern Ireland. I remember that it was 2005 because Ephraim was born in 2005, and I remember that Hannah was pregnant with Ephraim at the time. Ephraim still likes to tell people that he's been to Northern Ireland, which... Technically, I guess, in the womb, that's true. Um, <clears throat> but we took a youth group over there, and uh, I had a friend that was living over there at the time, and uh, we went over, and we, we did this little thing. It was called Summer Madness and Street Reach. It, it's kind of like the Alive Festival with an outreach element to it. So there were like concerts and speakers and Christian music and stuff like that. But then you would also go out, and you would... Uh, do some evangelism, street evangelism in Belfast. Now, for those of you who might not know, Belfast is a city in the 70s, 80s, and 90s that was very much marked by turmoil and a lot of violence. You, you had these two opposing sides. One of them were, uh, the, generally speaking, the Catholic side, and they wanted to be free from the rule of England, and they wanted to join the rest of, of Ireland because Northern Ireland is technically a, a under the rule of England, and then you had um, the Protestant side, which more sided with the English. Again, those are kind of the broad strokes of it, but these sides, there was a lot, lot of violence, uh, much warring. In fact, when we went out and did Street Reach, there's a section with, in the very center of Belfast, I don't know how many square blocks, but it's surrounded by 40-foot walls with barbed wire on top, and inside of the primarily Protestant area is where all the uh, Catholics and those who want to um, or who wanted to be free from English rule and would, would like to join the Republic of Ireland uh, primarily live. Um, anyway, so there was, and there were, there were murals all over the city um, of guys in ski masks, and just you, you got a little bit of a sense of the, of the history of it. Again, it wasn't like this when we were, when we were over there um, at the moment, but you could, you could sense a little bit of the tension. One day, um, during one of the uh, times of worship and speaking events, and you're talking probably a couple thousand people. It was, it was a pretty big deal. Uh, um, they began before the kind of the, the service or whatever 
to um, show this uh, media presentation. And um, they had these two guys all of a sudden come out on stage, and we didn't really quite understand what was happening until afterwards. But each one of those sides that would war with each other, whenever they went out, they had a, they had a specific drum that, would, that was representative of their side. And I couldn't tell, I don't remember which one was which, but one of, the, one of them was like a big drum like this, and it was really deep in bass, and boom, boom, boom. And they begin to beat it, and then the other side was a smaller drum, and it was and it was, it was a little bit faster. And you, you, I've never, it's probably one of the most powerful corporate moments I've ever been involved in, is that, we, again, we didn't live there, so we didn't quite fully understand it, but as soon as that one drum began to beat, Everyone that lived there understood what this represented, and you could just instantly, there was kind of some, you know, excitement and talking, whatever, and instantly you could have just heard a pin drop other than the, this drum and just the tension in the room, and then the other drum began to play. And what they did was, was just kind of in this symbolic way of wanting to unify the two sides, they had the tr two drums come together, and they began to kind of like play in harmony, just kind of representing that they're pr as kind of a symbol of, symbolism of just prayer for unity within the city and stuff like that. Does that make sense? And, but as these two drums began to play together, people just began to weep. I mean, just, again, it was one of the most, po most powerful corporate moments I've ever been a, a part of. I, and I, and I, I, I'm not trying to exaggerate, but almost to the place of, like, people just began to wail and, like, just crowd to the Lord. It was very, very powerful. Anyway, we didn't find out till afterwards what exactly those drums meant and, and, what all, and what all that meant. But I, but I say all that uh, to bring us to this passage this morning and to make this point is that in that moment over there when all that was happening, in order to appreciate the power of that moment, you had to have somewhat of an understanding of the context in which it was happening, the violence that many people had seen and the tension that many of them had lived with. And not to be too overly dramatic, but in, in these seven verses here this morning, in order to appreciate the power of this passage, you have to keep in mind the context in which Paul is speaking it and, and, what, he's, and what he's talking about. And the context of this passage, as we've, as we've talked already before, is that Paul is not writing here in these seven verses an exhaustive treatise on the church's interaction with government authority. In other words, it, it's not going, it, it doesn't necessarily touch on every theoretical situation that could possibly arise, but he is writing to Christians whom he is calling to live lives of continual worship, okay? And we've, and we've got to understand this context in which Paul is writing and that that's his intent in order to allow these, the moment we have in these verses to impact our lives. Um, is that central to each and every single one of our lives is our relationship to government authorities. We are all citizens of a country. There are, and again, we'll, we'll touch on this a little bit as we, as we go through it today, but there, there are nations and there are rulers and there are governments all over the world today um, that, are, that are warring and there is tension and they are at odds and it comes down and it filters down and it impacts every individual citizen no matter what um, context you find yourself in throughout the entire world. But what we're going to see today is that we serve a God who is, who is over all of that. Um, and just by way, again, just of just kind of set up for us and our purposes here as a, as a local church, is that we are disciples of Jesus Christ, guys. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. Disciple means learner, means that we follow him. We are learning the way of Christ. And there, as, as we've said before, theology matters, but there is no stone in the existence of your life to which Christ's lordship is not going to overturn and to which the gospel does not apply. And so I, I, if I can just be honest like, um, and just fully transparent, it, coming up to this passage, I, I'll be honest with you, like, I wasn't super excited to preach it. Like, I was just kind of, okay, like, obey authorities, end of message, go sit down. Like, it'd be a really short message, all right? But as I pressed into it, there is stuff here that is absolutely essential and, and I think um, quite applicable and timely for the season in which we find ourselves not just on, uh, on a world stage, uh, but also moving into the next year, which every four years we get it, and every, uh, it happens, and every four years I want to pull my hair out, is we enter into an, elec into an election cycle or an election year. 
And there's much in this passage to which I think the Bible uh, is going to press this morning, and it wants to teach us some things. It wants to teach us some things. And again, as disciples, as learners, I want us to lean into that, okay? Because this is important, ultimately, um, not just for how we act in some sort of separate compartment of our lives, but it is important that we might be continual worshipers of Jesus Christ, okay? That we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual act of worship. And this, and how we, how we interact with the government is one of the things that, remember back in 12, 1 and 2, that is good, acceptable, and perfect, okay? And so the Bible is going to speak to that. So one really big idea that you see in the text um, that's kind of the overarching theme and then a few specifics, very specific <laughs> specifics that he's going to get down into and that I want us to get this morning. Here's the, here's the big thing, and we'll spend the most time on this and hopefully it will permeate everything else that we talk about, is that as Christians, as disciples, we are to submit to government authorities as those who understand where those authorities get their authority. Let me say that again. As Christians, we are to submit to government authority as those who understand where the authorities get their authority. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me again. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Okay? From the very outset, this is the big idea that Paul wants us to get. And I say we're to submit to governing authorities as those who understand, understanding being the key, because again, remember the impact and the importance of 12, 1 and 2. How are we to live lives of continual worship? How are we to offer our bodies in such a way that it is acceptable to God? By not being conformed to this world, but by being transformed by the renewing of our mind. We are to think differently. What Paul says in verse 1 is distinctly a Christian worldview is that over all of the governing powers and rulers and authorities throughout history and throughout time and that exist in the world today, there is a God who is sovereign over them all. Amen? Over all of them. And because we know that truth and not just know it, but we believe it, we are to live in light of it. And when we know this, when our mind is renewed on this, when we understand this, then it should change the way in which we live. And so we should not interact and have a general attitude of the way in which we think and talk about governing authorities in the same way as the world. We should sound differently, folks. We should not just sound differently. We should talk differently. We should act differently. The truth of the Word of God, again, theology matters. The truth of the Word of God should shape the way that we live. But it is because of this distinctly Christian worldview, and this is what, again, what Paul was setting up here at the beginning that's going to impact everything else that he says. Most of what he, he says in this passage are just kind of, it's a broad, overarching statement about our general demeanor towards governing authorities. And it should be different. It should be different than the world. You know, um, I was just, I was telling the worship team before we came out here this morning, one of the uh, kind of ahas that I came to over the last couple of weeks as I was studying this passage, it's, it's not really a real deep aha, it's kind of a Captain Obvious aha, but if, but if you think about all of kind of what I would call maybe like the flagship Bible stories, so the Exodus, Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, even David's interaction with Saul, Elijah, with King Ahab and wicked Queen Jezebel. And like so many of these stories are accounts of how God's people were interacting with authority that was over them that had been placed there by God, and yet this authority was in many ways wicked. Like so many of the Old Testament Bible stories that we learn in Sunday school and that are the foundation of our faith speak to this very thing as to how we are to interact. And I think the reason that so many of those stories exist and make up a, such a large portion of our Bible is that if we're to live lives that are pleasing to Christ, we need to press into this. 
We can't just gloss over it and be like, oh yeah, you know, I got my church life and I try to be a Christian here, but then there's politics. No, 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 no. Those are not two separate things. The more and more you gain a biblical worldview and allow the Bible to press on area of your life, here's what should happen, is that there will not be any divide in you between the secular and the sacred. Everything is spiritual. Everything is sacred. Because we are to live lives of continual worship as Christians, as people who have an understanding of this truth here specifically, that there is no authority except from God. Now, the, again, the general thing that Paul was going to press for here, and <coughs> we'll get into it more in just a little bit, is that, is that we are to be a blessing to the world, we're to be submissive to these, to these authorities. Um, I think that it, it very clearly goes without saying, again, when you understand every passage of Scripture within its context, is that, again, this is not an exhaustive treatise on the Christian's interaction with government, but it is a large part of it, and it's kind of a central attitude that we're to hold. Um, there, is, there is more to say on it, and again, we have all of the Bible because we, we need all of the Bible. Uh, let me quote D.A. Carson and then John Stott here, just in, in thinking about this idea. D.A. Carson says, Paul's demand that Christians submit to government means simply that they recognize the government's rightful place within the hierarchy of relationships that have been established by God, a hierarchy whose pinnacle is God himself. When, therefore, government usurps its place and commands us to do something contrary to our ultimate Lord, who is Jesus, we are free and indeed obligated to, be, to, uh, to disobey. Um, and these exceptions to this advice are assumed in this passage but not spelled out. John Stott says the principle is clear. We are to submit right up to the point where obedience to the state would entail disobedience to God. But if the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then our plain Christian duty is to resist and to not submit. As Peter said to the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than men. So understanding that caveat that, yeah, there's going to be times, um, and many times, and many of the stories that I was talking about throughout the Old Testament, especially, are examples of where um, the earthly authority um, caused there to be conflict and actually commanded things that God forbids or commanded to, to do things that God didn't want them to do. Um, and so you, you've got that caveat. But, but the point is, is that we are to look at the authorities. We see them. We honor them. He's going to say that very specifically. We're going to show respect to them. But we don't just see them. We don't ignore them, but we also are looking past them to the God who stands behind them, to the God who stands over them. Um, you, you see this in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. Again, like, awesome Bible story. Loved this one growing up in Sunday school. Is that Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most powerful king of one of the most powerful kingdoms uh, that has ever existed, the Babylonian kingdom. He makes this big statue of gold and he sets it up and he commands everybody to come and to bow down and to worship it. Now that puts them in conflict, okay, with honoring the authorities and yet ultimately honoring the Lord. And so he gets pretty mad about it um, and he says that anybody who doesn't do this is going to be cast into the, into the fiery furnace. Um, he finds out that they're not bowing down. They bring him before him. He threatens them again. Um, and then he says, and what God is going to be able to deliver you from my hands? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. I love this. But even if he does not, but even if he doesn't, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the, gold, the golden image that you have set up. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6, again, classic story, Daniel in the lion's den. Um, there's a bunch of shady political characters that get King Darius to make this edict for just a short period of time that no one can pray to any other god other than him because, again, the rulers were seen as gods back in that day. And he signs it, and he says anyone who doesn't do this is going to be thrown into the lion's den. And again, these guys have, a, have an agenda against Daniel, and they're just trying to find a way um, to get rid of him. But and then in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, it says, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, and again, the document said, you can't pray to any other gods other than, other than King Darius. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber 
open towards Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and he gave thanks just as he had done before. <laughs> That's it. So this isn't, we don't have to make this super confusing. Obviously there's going to be caveats to this. But brothers and sisters, from the beginning, there's two mindsets that I want us to get okay, in regards to God's sovereignty. Is that yes, of course, when it comes down to the way in which we worship and hindering that, Jesus first, always. There's not even a close second. Our allegiance is to Jesus Christ above all. Amen? 100%. However, at every other moment, whenever possible, we should not be sluggish in our willingness to obey earthly authority that does not conflict with the way in which we worship. And this is the real press where, if I'm honest, many of us need to be ready to be convicted. Okay? Is because, because God has set these authorities in place, we know that it's ultimately from him. Yes, we don't ultimately fear them, but we also should show a zeal and a passion to do good. And this is the second thing I really want to talk about here, is that in our mission, in our mission um, to be disciples of Jesus Christ and to have this right understanding, is that we should be passionate and act as free people in regards to the zeal with which we, which, with which we seek to show good to government officials. Continue to read on here with me. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one in authority? Middle of verse 3, then do what is good. Do what is good. Very simple. Very straightforward command. Goes along with so much else that Paul has said leading up to this point. Again, Matt did a great job with the passage last week, but how the passage ended um, at the end of chapter 12, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do we fight evil in our world? We get all of the goodness that God has given us, all the blessing that God has poured out on us, and we seek to give it, not just to those who deserve it, but even to our enemies, even to those who hate us. We overcome evil with good. Is that our mission is to be a blessing to government authorities. I, I can't say, I know that isn't like, it doesn't rhyme, it's not alliterated, but it's very, very plain and straightforward. If you want to be a thriving, flourishing disciple of Jesus Christ, brother and sister, you need to walk in this. So do I. That we need to seek to be a blessing to government and to, go, and to government officials and individuals that make up uh, that government authority. Um, two things here. If we're going to serve in such a way that brings honor and glory to our Father who is in heaven, and so I'll get back to that in just a second, but remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, passage most people probably know, just apply it here to the government. He says, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, and let's just insert here for the sake of our passage, let your light shine before government officials, government authorities, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, just very quickly, of course, there is a way in which Jesus also spoke in the same context in the Sermon on the Mount. There's a way in which we can do good works that makes it all about us. So Jesus says in one place, he says, you know, when your right hand gives, don't let, don't let your left hand know what it's doing. He says, when you pray, go into your closet, shut the door, and your Father who sees you in secret will, will, will reward you. When you fast, don't let people know that you're fasting, but like, you know, do it before God. And, he, and he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's obviously not what he's talking about here. There is also, though, another way, as it, it, as it explicitly says, in which 
we are to do our good works, that it gives glory to our Father who's in heaven. Now, what I want to press is, is that I don't think that that's possible, especially in the context of blessing those who work within the government, is I don't think it's possible to be a blessing if you're afraid of them or if you hate them. I don't think it's possible. First of all, if you hate them, that one's pretty obvious. <laughs> you ever have somebody do something to you? It's like, I mean, you know, sometimes when the boys are little, you know, it's like they get in a fight and we're like, give each other a hug. <laughs> okay, you know, you can do the action, but, you know, they're not really feeling it. Um, I apologize, guys, for always being the center of my sermon illustrations, but it is what it is. Uh, but you've, you've got that type of action, but again, that, and the, but that one's kind of easy. But here's the other thing, is you're not going to serve them in a way that brings your Father glory also if you're afraid of them. Guys, we can't be afraid. The gospel sets us free from fear so that we can serve in a way that is different than the world. Amen? So, in probably the closest parallel passage to what Paul writes about here in Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Peter, in his epistle of 1 Peter, um, says something very similar. Just listen to it. Okay, this, I'm just going to read it. This, this preaches itself. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Listen, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, there it is again, for that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And then listen to what he says, verse 16. Live as people who are free. Free from what? Free from fear. If the government wants to come and take my stuff, guess what? It's not actually my stuff. It belongs to Jesus. So you want to take his stuff? You got to deal with him. Here it is. See, now the rubber's hitting the road. Yeah, I didn't get any amens on that one. Um, but this is the type of freedom I'm talking about. Is it is a freedom that is different than the world. It is a freedom that doesn't obey, just, okay, I guess I'm supposed to like you. Ugh. No, there's a sincerity of heart. Why? Because we were once God's enemies. And Jesus didn't just come and go through the motions. He came and he poured out all that he had on the cross. And even as he hung there, he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Dear friend, the gospel is to inform every single area of our lives. And it is not okay to say that we love Jesus and that we're seeking to live lives of continual worship and yet have rotten attitudes towards those that he has placed in earthly authority over us. It's just not. You can't do it. Um, and in regards here, again, he, he says all authority, okay, or there is no authority except from God, um, again, that passage in 1 Peter, you know, he, he says every human institution, whether the emperor is supreme or his governors, but just let's put some more flesh on this. It, it doesn't matter if we're talking about presidents or policemen. It doesn't matter if we're talking about secretaries of state or school boards. It doesn't matter if we're talking about judges or those that work in job and family services. They are government officials that, again, whatever, in God's sovereignty, they have been placed there, and we are to bless them. Do you think about that as your responsibility as a Christian? I, want, I, want, I just want to have some real, some real, real talk here for a second, guys. This is something in this passage that, over the last couple weeks, that I want to be very honest. I'm not just saying this to sound good in the midst of a sermon. This has been something the Lord has truly convicted me about. And in some ways, he hasn't convicted me about doing the thing that I shouldn't, although there's been some of that too. But he's convicted me primarily about not doing the thing that we should. What I mean by that is, there is a lot of room for growth in myself 
And, um, and I'm sure many of you do a better job than I do, but I think there's a lot of room for growth in us as a church to grow in this area of being passionate, to be a blessing to the government authorities and to the world around us. L- let me give you a specific illustration several years ago, and this is the thing that I'm primarily convicted by, and, I'm, and I wish I could stand here right now and tell you that I've acted a lot in light of this and that, I ha- and that we're doing all this stuff and that all this is happening. It's not, but I'm, I'm honestly confessing it to you, and I'm saying by God's grace and by his mercy, it's going to change, Okay? Several years ago, when we, had, when we adopted Jordy, he was with the um, Tuscarawas County Job and Family Services, is who, is who had him when we first got him and we you know, were able to adopt him or whatever. And it, it, we were just, it was towards the very end and we were just finishing a bunch of like final paperwork before we were gonna go to the court date where he officially became our son. Um, and I just, in passing, Ask the caseworker that we'd been that we'd been working with. I said, "Hey, how many how many kids do you have up for adoption right now that parental rights have been severed, and you know for sure like they're never going to be able to go back to their to their biological parents?" And and at that and again this would it, it fluctuates, but at that time she goes 77. 77. I remember in that moment. It, it just like lit a fire in me. And my point of repentance comes in that I have not done anything much with that other than think about it and pray about it and talk about it with a few people. But again, by God's grace, it's going to change. 77 kids that cannot find a home that a government agency is doing the best job that it can with where it's at to try to care for them. And believe me, you want to pray for people that are on the front lines, pray for job and family services caseworkers. Very nitty-gritty, very hard, very hard work. Again, some Christian, but many not. Doesn't matter. God's placed them there and we're, and we're to bless them. But what lit a fire in me is that in homes in Tusk County, there's way more than 77 churches And you're telling me we can't find 77 Christian homes to take these kids that are orphans and have nowhere to go? Now, please hear me. This is kind of another sermon for another day. Just put a pin in this. I'm going to make my way back to Romans 13, I promise. I don't think, in regards to this, I don't think that you should adopt unless you have prayed about it and know that the Lord's calling you to it. Okay, so this isn't a, I say that because this isn't some sort of a drive-by guilting in regards to how we all need to adopt kids. I'm saying the Lord, but if the Lord is, but you need to consider it, and if the Lord has called you to it, I think, I think you should do it. My point is simply this, is that government agencies like Tuscarawas County Job and Family Services, or whatever it may be, they should be running to the church because they know the church will answer. Because they know the people of God will respond because they know they don't need to twist arms to try to get us to act, but this is the mission that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has given us to be a blessing to the world. That's what it means to be salt and light. But I don't think, well here's what I think, and I don't wanna say we, but I'm just gonna talk about me, okay? I think I'm lazy. And sometimes we want to spiritualize like all this stuff, like, oh, I got, you know, I got this going on and we're busy, you know, and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who cares? I'm lazy. And it's very easy for me to give excuses about being a blessing in the way that God has called us to be um, rather than actually doing what he's called us to do. Let me press on this a little bit more, Okay. This one's a little bit pointed. Put a helmet on and get ready, okay? Like I said earlier, it's an election year. (laughs) If we approached our mission to be a blessing to the world with the same passion that we approach and talk about our politics, the world would be transformed. That's true. 
Dear friend, we're not to, you can talk about politics. You can be involved in politics. Vote. Go vote. But don't forget who's ultimately in charge. And examine your life to see if it looks any different in regards to politics and government than the world. And if it doesn't, then again, what I'm saying is your theology has not worked its way down into your life, not just into your hearts, but into your hands in a way that is transformative. Um, <clears throat> this is another very, very specific application. But again, I'm, I'm truly seeking, please hear me, I'm not trying to be, like I'm, I've not done this well, okay? So I'm not, both, like I'm like, you can hold me accountable. We're gonna do better, right? But I, I've had this on my heart for the last couple weeks. In fact, uh, two elders meetings ago, I shared it with the elders and we're just kind of, we were just kind of talking and praying about it. But I felt, I really have felt the Holy Spirit kind of pressing this on my heart. And I don't know fully what it is, but I think the reason I don't know fully what it is is because he wants all of us to be involved and that's what I'm about to share with you. Is that I really want us to have a season of intentionality with, with the hopes that this season turns into something permanent. But I really want us as a church to engage in a season of intentionality in regards to being a blessing to the world around us. Please hear me. You are. You are a blessing. Please hear me. I'm not saying that you guys don't do anything. I, I hear stories. As a pastor, it's, one of the unique things about being a pastor is you get a little bit of a front row seat to both the best and some of the worst things that happen. And um, I see and hear stories regularly of how you guys are a blessing, not just to each other, but to people that don't attend here. I truly, truly mean that. I'm not, I'm not just saying that. But I want us to grow in intentionality and in the mission that is to be central of being a blessing, of being salt and light to the world around us. And I don't even know, like, here's the application, is that in regards to what exactly to do, I'm not even sure what all to do. I know for me, one of the things that I'm going to at least begin to engage in, I don't even know what's going to happen, is to begin to engage with Tuscarawas County Job and Family Services and have some of those conversations and ask how, church, how the church could be a blessing, more of a blessing than what, it, than what it has been. But here's what I want you to do, okay? I want you to take any, any idea that you have. It doesn't, listen, what I mean by this is you don't need six visions, five dreams, and seven nightmares to know if it's the Lord speaking to you or not. Okay, I'm just saying, like, if you've got an idea, hey, I think we should do this. I think we should write little thank you cards to all our teachers in the schools. What, I, it could be anything. I want you to go to mercyhillfamily.com or .org. We own the rights to both, so either one. I want you to go to that website. In the bottom of the website, there's usually a little circle that says next steps. I want you to click on that. When you click on that, a little mini menu is going to pop up, and the, and the first thing at the top of that menu is going to say connect card. I want you to click on connect card. And you can, put it, you can make any comment in there that you want, but here's what I want you to do with that section that allows for comments. I want you just to type in an idea that you have about some way that we as a church, either individually, a few of us, or all of us together, could be a blessing to the world. Does that make sense? You with me? I want you to do that. And then we're going to take them as elders and we're going to think about how we can best mobilize ourselves to do this, okay? And I honestly do. I hope every single one of you does this. We will be very overwhelmed. Conrad, specifically, will be very overwhelmed because he gets all the forms, but he's not here today, so he does, I don't think he is. <laughs> he's out west. Anyway, um, it'll be funny. Uh, but just do that, okay? And we're going, we're going to be intentional in obeying this passage as a church together. Are you with me? Does this make sense? There's a lot to do, guys. There's a lot to do. And as kingdoms rage and kingdoms totter and all this different stuff, the world, uh, the church, I'm sorry, is to be a blessing in the midst of it that shines like light in the midst of darkness. Third, a couple more things very quickly. This is another specific one. I, I, it's, it's a whole big conversation. We don't have a lot of time. I'm just going to hit it in passing. But the, the third kind of application here, a thing that I want to push a little bit, is that attitudes and actions towards the government that might be characterized as rebellious 
have the potential to hinder your worship by hardening your heart. Let me say that again. Attitudes and actions towards government officials that might be characterized as rebellious have the potential to hinder your worship by hardening your heart. Eric, where are you getting that from? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath. I won't spend a ton ton of time on that, not because I'm trying to avoid it, but it's pretty straightforward. If you act like a doofus, can I say that? Doofus, and disobey laws, you're going to get punished. Okay? But then he has this little phrase, not only for the, to avoid God's wrath, but for the sake of conscience. For the sake of conscience. Here's where it would take a lot of time to unpack all that the Bible says about conscience and the nature of what it is. For our purposes here this morning, and again, I, I, I can make this argument biblically, here's what I want you to get is that our conscience, every person has it, both Christian and non-Christian, but the conscience is an internal witness to our value system. It is an internal witness to our value system. Now, whether or not our value system is correct, in other words, the truth that we hold about our values, whether or not that's correct is going to affect our conscience. Let me give you a very quick example from our culture that most of you have probably seen or maybe experienced is that in our culture, one of the values that's pressed in certain circles and by certain denominations and groups is that you have to dress a certain way, okay? Is that, like, dress code is very, very important. Now, that is a value that is pushed into them from a very young age. I've seen people wrestle with whether or not they're living in sin or not because of the guilt that they feel in their conscience because this value system has been so pushed upon them, but the value system isn't really based upon truth. And so when they're coming out of that and decide that they're going to dress maybe a different way, then they wrestle through that like, is my, you know, I feel kind of guilty. Is this right? Is this wrong? Does this mean that it's sin? No, it's that your value system was off a little bit. And so there wasn't the wasn't truth in you in that area, and so you need to change your value system that your conscience might be, might be in, in subjection to it and have a clean conscience. The conscience is also a servant of our value system. So the conscience doesn't necessarily make our value system, but it helps us walk in kind of in light of our value system. Now, how does this tie in here with what he says about conscience? Well, he's just taught us that as Christians, we should have a sensitive conscience towards our attitude and actions in regards to the way we interact with the government. The point being is that with what Paul has just said that our, about, that our default mode of operation in regards to our attitude towards the government should be one of seeking to submit, one of seeking to obey, and one of seeking to bless. What he's saying is if you're not doing that, there should be something in your conscience that makes you feel a little bit out of place and guilty. And it's honestly, it's something that, so for example, I, I, I'm not, again, trying to boast in this, but like it's kind of what I just modeled for you in regards to the way that the word has convicted me. There's, there's ways we can do better. My conscience is not super clean in regards to some of the things that I felt the Holy Spirit press on my heart from the word as I've studied this over the last couple weeks, and so I'm seeking, so I'm seeking to change that. Now, when the Holy Spirit is working on our conscience or on our heart and he's pressing something on there that we need to come into alignment with the word of God, if we just resist that and we just say things like, well, you don't understand, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat or this is just the way I was raised or this is, you know, this is just always the way I felt, I don't care. The word of God is the word of Jesus Christ. He is Lord of your life. We need to align our value system and what, and what his word says um, because to what he says because he's our Lord. Does that make sense? Now, if you don't, if you continue to resist this and go against conscience in regards to the teaching of the word of God in regards to our attitude towards, towards government authorities, eventually, and I, we don't have time to unpack all this in the Bible, but the conscience becomes a little bit harder. It becomes less sensitive. Eventually, it becomes the place where it gets seared, and then we're kind of like numb to the leading and guiding of God in our life. Does that make sense? So we can't skip Romans 13, folks. It, it, what it becomes like initially, the conscience, it's like a pebble in your shoe. You ever walk, and it's just a tiny, it's not a big rock, it's just like a little tiny pebble, and you're walking, and you're like, can I keep going? 
And you try to do that, but eventually you start walking funny to try to like avoid it. Um, no, you got to stop. You got to take it out, and you got to deal with it. Okay. So if your conscience has been sensitive to something that the word is, has said this morning in regards to your attitude and actions towards the government, stop and get it out. Deal with it, that your worship might not be hindered. Um, in the, long, in the long term. This is what the Bible does. Just very quickly, one more word here on conscience and I'll keep going and we'll wrap up. First Timothy chapter three, Paul very quickly in some broad ways, oh, I'm sorry, First Timothy chapter one, verses three through seven, he very quickly compares the aim of false teachers and what it produces and the fruit of what they uh, produce, what their teaching produces. In First Timothy chapter, chapter one, he says, as I urged you, He's talking to Timothy. When I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now get this. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote or produce speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. That's what false teaching does. It sounds real good. It sounds real spiritual. It sounds real deep. But in the end, it's just a bunch of myths. And it leads to nothing but speculation. Okay. Now he compares that, verse 5, with the teaching of the gospel. He says the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So you see that this is what gospel teaching does. This is what the Bible does. It should constantly be promoting a good conscience. And one of the things that I wouldn't doubt at all in our culture that we've lost over and that our conscience has become a little bit hard or desensitized is in regards to what the Bible says about our attitude towards the government. All right, lastly, point number four, perhaps the most clear yet anticlimactic point that I've ever ended a sermon with, but it's very straightforward and it's in the word of God. Point number four, pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. (laughs) Verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now, one quick thing on this is that notice here, not only is it a very straightforward command, in fact, out of this whole section, it's primarily, as I've been saying, kind of this broad attitude and outlook and worldview in which we're to live. This is the one specific that he pushes. And isn't it funny that 2,000 years ago, Christians uh, didn't like it just like they don't now. The word of God is true. It's sufficient, timely. Pay your taxes, but notice we don't just pay them. It's also the manner in which we pay them. And see, for the Christian, and again, you talk about being different and being a blessing to the world. Listen, guys, it's never about just what we do. It's never about just doing the right thing. It's about doing the right thing the right way. It's about doing the right thing with the right attitude. So he says, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. But then notice what he puts in there. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Stinking government taxing me to death. Stinking IRS. That's not what he's calling for. Yeah, but I paid him. That's not what he's calling for. He's calling you to pay them with a good attitude. If we want to be salt and light, then this is essential. Worship team, you can come up and we'll begin to close. Just a couple big stories that I don't have time to unpack, but just to think about things that you're familiar with. Again, going back to the idea that we are those who interact with government authorities in a way that we understand where, there is a, where those authorities get their authority. Um, I mean, you remember the story of Mary and Joseph? And when Mary becomes pregnant by the Holy Spirit and Jesus is born in Bethlehem, you know the reason they end up in Bethlehem. That's not where they lived. They lived in Nazareth. But they went to Bethlehem, and by doing so, I think unknowingly from their perspective, they ended up fulfilling the scripture that prophesied that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. But the reason they went on an earthly level 
Again, that was the heavenly level. But from the earthly level, the reason that they went is because Caesar Augustus had put out a decree that the whole world should be registered. And you know why he wanted to register everybody? It's the idea of taking a census. You know why he wanted to take a census of the whole world? So that he could tax the whole world. But they obeyed. And they went. And they just did their thing under the sovereign hand of God. And in a little town in Bethlehem, in a manger, the Messiah was born. God's sovereignty over every detail of the human life. And he can use governments to bring that about even when the governments do not acknowledge him, honor him, and don't recognize him as the ultimate authority over them. In the same way, Jesus, at the very pinnacle of what he came to do, to be our Lord and Savior, when he could have called legions of angels to his side to deliver him at any moment, he stood before Pontius Pilate and he remained silent. And so Pilate said to him, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus looked at Pilate, but didn't just look at Pilate. I believe he was also looking past Pilate. And he said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Do you see how Jesus took the truth that we're talking about this morning and he lived in light of it? And he lived in light of it not just on some little side event that happened, but it was right at the very heart of everything that he came to do. That Herod and Pilate, the Jewish officials, they all conspired to crucify him, but Jesus knew who was really in charge. Dear Christian brother, sister, we gotta live like we know who's really in charge. So let's act like Christians, let's pray like Christians, let's bless the world like Christians, let's worship like Christians, and let's live like we understand where the authorities really get their authority. Because the source of their authority is our Heavenly Father, who loves us dearly. Let's pray. Father, thanks for today. Thanks for your word. Lord, we talked about some very specific things this morning. By the help of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, would you please help us to obey them? Would you please help us to obey them? That our lives might be an offering of worship that is fragrant and acceptable to you and that the world might see and our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You guys stand with me.